This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 162, Management of Wales. The death of Richard III in 1485 paved the way for Henry to be crowned king by right and by conquest. It, however, did not secure the kingdom. It simply meant that he might have been yet another in a long line of groups fighting for the throne with mixed results during the War of the Roses. So often you'd see people come to the fore, be it the Duke of York, King Edward IV, Richard III, Henry VI. All of these men had been in positions of power for some length of time, some for a lengthy amount of time, some for a lot less, depending on the circumstance and situation. Practically and publicly, Henry needed to end the war, though through means that could not be doubted, at least to the majority of the public. The planning for of his mother and Elizabeth Woodville, now finally, after years, had to come to pass. On January 18th in 1486, Henry VII married Princess Elizabeth, daughter of Edward IV, in London. It would later be described that this was the end of the War of the Roses, as the Tudor Rose would now include both the Lancastrians and Yorkists. The symbolic end, for sure, but not the actual end. In Wales, there was a sense of rejoicing amongst those who saw Henry as one of theirs. But, as stated previously, I very much doubt Henry saw it this way. His use of the dragon motif was more about idolization of a figure from history rather than some nationalistic British flourish. The naming of children after King Arthur was also common in a all segments of society due to the popularity of the mythological figure in medieval Europe. The links to Wales and Henry VII were, to say the least, tenuous at best, and while the bards and nobles rejoiced, Henry went about dealing with the day-to-day. He rarely gave any more notice to one part of his kingdom over another, and his concerns were more in a practical nature than in a nationalistic one. Henry, until the 16th century, would continue to face opposition from pretenders, claiming relationships to one of the Yorkist contenders. None of them, of course, succeeded. Few could reasonably mount anything near solid opposition. Most worryingly, though, it did mean that some notable names got caught up in these schemes. William Stanley, a key supporter of Henry, someone we've mentioned a lot the last couple of episodes, and a beneficiary of lands and money, became disaffected as the years went along. Eventually, he was found to support one of the pretenders, a man claiming to be Prince Richard, the son of Edward IV. His real name was Perkin Warbeck, a man from a murky background. The reality of this claim 
is very dubious, and most academics appear to agree that he could have been a possible illegitimate child of the Yorkist, but that was probably in all likelihood about all that he could do and say and be. Why Stanley became disaffected or why he was shut out of peerages and titles is not very clear, but for his part and his support of this pretender, he was executed. There were attempts on a number of occasions to land Warbeck in England or Scotland, but they all came to nothing in the end, as Warbeck would be captured and sent to the Tower of London. He, along with another possible contender for the throne, Edward Plantagenet, Duke of Warwick, were both captured trying to escape in 1499, summarily executed. With their deaths, the last problem of any note was dealt with, and by 1500 the Tudors sat on the throne, unopposed, internally at least. One aspect of these rebellions, from the Welsh perspective, was the attempt in 1486 of the Vaughns and the Herberts, long enemies of the Tudors, to foment rebellion in Wales. These men continued to try and achieve their aims, and continued to try and become a thorn in the side of a prince and a king that they weren't very fond of. Sir Thomas Vaughan led an armed force to try and capture Brecon. In the end, Henry met these rebels via Sir Rhys Ap Thomas, who had become invaluable to Henry over this period. Rhys was able to defeat Vaughan, and a great deal of the damage was contained before it could accomplish much. Rhys was a key man in Wales for Henry, and led the charge against many of the various rebels that would appear over the next 15 years. One thing that had become very obvious to many academics is if you listen to a few episodes of this particular podcast, of course it comes across as well, is that Henry VII was a lot of things, but a military commander did not appear to be one of them. He was very good at finding the right men to serve for him, and that had experience, ruthlessness, and in some cases bloody-mindedness to get the job done. And for his entire reign, he was able to fight off all challengers, leaving a kingdom prepared for his successors. Jasper Tudor, Duke of Bedford, became an important man in the new Tudor government, acquiring a number of new lands and titles, both in and out of Wales. His influence as the last survivor of the early days of the disputes between Lancastrians and Yorkists meant that he was a focal point for Welsh territory and for powerful influence. Jasper would die in 1495, just 10 years later, childless, and the biggest beneficiary of this particular situation would be Resap Thomas, who, from that point on, continued to gain wealth and power in South Wales. The death of William Stanley as a traitor meant that his Welsh lands, and as well as the marcher areas he controlled, were returned to the hands of Henry, who now dominated Wales with Tudor possessions across all of the territory. His eldest son, Arthur, would be invested as Prince of Wales in 1490, and a new council was created to manage the principality. This council would survive until the end of the Commonwealth and the acquisition of the kingdom by William and Mary in 1688. The court of the council in the Dominion and Principality of Wales and the Marches of the Same, better known to us today as the Council of the Principality of Wales and the Marches, was first set up to govern 
Wales for Prince Edward, Henry VI's young son, to reign and manage the affairs for Wales for the prince while he grew to adulthood. It was re-established under Edward IV for his own Prince Edward, who was also a child at the time. In both cases, management of the area for these princes outlasted both the princes, and sadly, this would be the same for young Arthur, who would die as a teenager just before his 16th birthday. This council would now continue with the new Prince of Wales as Henry's second son, also of course named Henry, became the presumptive heir to the throne. For the first nearly 80 years, the council was managed by ecclesiastical figures, typically bishops, but as Henry VIII's conflict with the church commenced, that role would then be passed to various nobles. The goal of the council was to oversee the area, manage the administration of Wales, and keep judicial authority strong. In an area that had seen more or less a lot of fairly lawless situations, and that had continued to be a problem all the way through the 15th century and into the current century that we're now talking about. So controlling and trying to mitigate that is a very important part of what we're seeing them do and is a major role that they have. A major change came in the early years of the 16th century when the demand for the council came down to the earls to allow the extradition of criminals. Biggest problem that they had, or at least at this point that they were having, was that when crimes were committed, one criminal would run from one earldom to another, hiding in amongst the new earldom to try to avoid any sort of problems. Uh, similar to an extradition issue in modern times, this ruling basically mitigated that and put a stop to it by allowing the law to chase people into other people's territory. And the idea was, of course, to put a stop to some of the rebellions because they couldn't be helped by a local marcher lord giving them aid and comfort, especially if they were, you know, had broken the law in some form or fashion before that. Ludlow became the castle for the Prince of Wales, and it became an administrative center for the country. It was from here that young Henry would rule the Welsh. It also became a place where the nobles in Wales were taught, in quotes, proper ways to create the foundation of law and order. Something dubious in that, but let's just gloss that over for now, shall we? In a way, this development of administrative systems within the kingdom was the beginning of the end for the feudal system in England and Wales. They focused the power away from the local lord and placed it into concentrated hands of the administration, effectively a bureaucracy similar to what we have now, but not a fully fleshed out one by any means. Something that will only increase in time and in development as we get away from kingdoms to proper nation states. It will, of course, pick up a pace as it goes along. By the time we get to the Victorian era, we have an entire system wherein the lords and the nobles have a lot less influence than they had even at this point in time. Henry's desire in this development appeared to be about creating efficiencies in his government and in the day-to-day -day running of the kingdom. Tax collection and loyalty are one when people feel safe, when they are able to achieve economic success and don't have to worry where the next meal is coming from or who will steal their stuff. 
he must have realized over his life, both in Wales and on the run, that his kingdom could not be secured by dramatic language or calls for loyalty or some other sort of grand gesture of spending money on a local project. It had to have more in it than that, and it had to be built effectively from the system that was already in place. In his view, the system wasn't necessarily broken, or at least that seems to be what he was trying to say. It was simply in need of repair. And if you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factor's ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Basically, patching it up would help to it to survive. Of course, in the process of patching it up, he was taking it away from the basis of the system. Once you start to encourage an administrative system like this, you start to move it away from the loyalty firm, effectively, of the feudal system. You no longer have a relationship that's built from the commoner all the way up to the noble, all the way up to the lord, all the way up to the king. That doesn't work like that in this system. In this system, the administration is the one that truly runs the kingdom, and it's only the king and his cabinet, to use a more modern term, that help decide and judge how the administration is working and where it needs change. That is very different than what has previously existed or how it worked. And of course, what this means is it will change the financial system in Britain. It will change the way wealth is acquired. And it will also slowly but surely remove the nobility from positions where 
they gain power by simply being nobles. They must gain power in other ways, and thus we get to other systems that will take its place over time as the system changes. And in doing so, it creates what is called the early modern Europe. This is where you start to see so much of what we now use being fomented and created. The idea of a middle class, which did exist in European standards in the Middle Ages, now starts to grow because there's a place for them in the system. The middle manager, the merchant, who was always important in the medieval period, now gains even more importance and control. Religion, of course, starts to take slowly but surely a back seat in the governing of the country because, of course, of the rise of things like the Reformation and all the changes that will come from that, it starts to slowly weed governments from its normal power structures, from its normal social systems. All of these things will create massive sea change within the next 200 years. But at this point and at this time, it's so slow in the way it's moving and the way it's starting that most governments haven't got their head around it yet. They think it's just a small change. It's like the introduction on a on a different scale of the smartphone. When the smartphone comes along, it's seen as a more convenient way to reach the internet, to do some basic things. But slowly but surely, as it goes from being just this thing that's a phone that you kind of use for some other things to a thing where you use it for other things, oh, and it, by the way, it's a phone, um, all of this change that we see in our own lifetime, there's a microcosm of that in this era. The difference is, of course, is it's spread out over a much longer time. You're not going to get an instantaneous flow of change. You're going to have slow, incremental changes which just build and build and build. And in the cases of places like France, you won't even have a change for years because the feudal system will carry on there, even though it's changing all around them in other kingdoms and countries, they themselves hold on to it probably the longest of anybody, which likely, if we're being honest, from a historical standpoint, is part of the reason why the revolution runs so rampant and so crazy, because that system has just been on the brink of destruction for a while. And somehow the Tudors move away from it in ways that are both revolutionary and evolutionary and avoid a lot of the troubles that will come, even if they have their own version of a civil war, even if they have their own version of all these problems, they still don't have the same degree to what happened in France. You don't have an entire gentry class being assassinated or being threatened with assassination. You have a war which is fought between the parliament and the king, which leads to the king's death. I'm sure he wasn't pleased about it, but it isn't like the mass destruction of an entire class of people in the same way that the French Revolution becomes. Those are macro topics, but you understand that a lot of this starts here in these kind of developments where you start to get away from mercenary companies being your chief army, the idea that a lord is controlling land and thus the people of the land owe him duty and it is their responsibility to 
do whatever he asks and he is responsibility to do whatever the king asks, those things start to change quite dramatically over time, especially once people get away from the land and start to move into urban areas more and more. You'll also see in this period the massive expansion of cities, which were always there, but never really as big in the in the Middle Ages the way they are now. And certainly you can't even measure them from effectively if you looked in the 1300s and the way government was run to the 1500s it is a very different animal with very different ideals even if it's not a modern sense it is still slowly moving that way so to get back to the whole story of all of this this was likely why the marcher lordships for example remained a symbol of the old and the past well past their usefulness. They remained under Henry VII, even though his system had started to ignore them. The reality of it was that a lot of marcher lords no longer existed. Henry owned a great deal of that territory and had given it to his uncle, for example. So, realistically, the role of a marcher lord as sort of a bordering region lordship to take military responses to problematic areas like Wales, like Ireland, under the Norman system is completely redundant in this system, especially with the conquering of Wales 200 years back at this point. There, there doesn't have to be the system of lords with this much power. And they were, quite simply, the lords that were leading to all the problems for the English king, because whenever problems started, generally these lords who had so much power, who had built up massive military structures, were leading the charge. So you can see why these positions start to become less and less desirable. But this is not a point when Henry's going to make that change. He's not aggressively wanting to work that way. Not yet, anyway. This is one of the reasons why academics generally look at Henry VII and see someone not really making sea change. And I think that's one of the interesting aspects of it. As well, they don't see him as attached to Wales, not in the way his supporters profess, because in the long run, much of what he did was neither specific to them nor particularly helpful in driving their situation forward in a positive manner. The issues in Wales remained similar to what they were for years. The economy still had not recovered from the past periods. The population had not recovered. The wars that had dragged on this basically off and on civil war had continued to cost lives and do damage to the area. Many still struggled against discrimination and the language consent continued to lull in the face of the official role English now played in society. Keep in mind, up until now, Latin was really the language of officialdom. Most bureaucratic items were written in Latin. Most letters were written in Latin. English is taking on a much more important role and will continue to do so in the coming years in ways that will make Welsh more difficult for the average Welshman and more difficult for everybody to try and use because with no linkage to the system and the need to speak English in order to participate in the system, it starts to become kind of an argument about whether or not you want to continue. 
Of course, Welsh is still popular and still remained popular in areas where even today there is a large percentage of Welsh speakers, which is in the Principality. In the Marcher areas, Welsh has been slowly weeded out, either through immigration of English people and others, or through, quite honestly, the fact that participation in the economy meant that you stopped speaking Welsh in your day-to-day life. You might speak it at home, but you're not speaking it in the town, in the market. It's just not as important to you as it once was. This is a minor amount compared to what will happen later, but at the moment, you can already see the change coming, and it already is built on lines of geography and continues to this day if we're honest with ourselves. What Henry VII did most in this period was to give the Welsh more control over themselves. More nobles and gentry were locally being raised to higher positions. The idea was the Welsh were not citizens, and that was be, had always been an issue, and now that was slowly dissipating, at least in public discourse. Few would say it was completely gone, but more and more upwardly mobile Welsh were climbing in Wales and England, and that was something Henry did achieve. In fact, there is a, a, a growing number of Welsh people involved in the government, and especially in London, and that would not have happened under previous regimes. His son, of course, will be a radical swing from this position of evolution over revolution, but at the moment, at the turn of the 16th century, at the dawn of early modern Europe, few could have predicted that sea change was just around the corner. Even as Henry battled various challengers and pretenders, he would not learn for a while that one of the greatest events in the history of the world was taking place on the continent. In 1472, just seven years after Henry won his kingdom, Christopher Columbus, with three ships, was sent to make an attempt to find a trade route across the Western Ocean to China. And of course, as we all now know, he found a completely new continent. At this particular time, a man by the name of Giovanni Cabotto was making his way around Europe. He had spent many years trying to get various maritime engineering projects going, including developing a canal in Italy and trying to build a bridge in Seville, Spain, none of which went past the design phase, to use a modern term. This meant Cabotto was likely not in the best financial position when he arrived in England in the early spring of 1496. There was some sense that his Spanish project was a disreputable flop. Some historians feel that because there's a, a blank in his historical record that Cabotto may have been an engineer who had gone with Columbus to the Caribbean on his second voyage. This would be something he would need amongst the thousands or so men that he took with him because the reason being is that it would then give him an idea of the route to the Americas. This was not a sailor. He was not a navigator. Why would Henry VII trust a guy who had never been in charge of a boat to sail across the ocean with no knowledge. So thus they have theorized that that was why, because he came back and basically used that particular achievement as a way of buffing his resume, so to speak. So on March 5th, 1496, Henry awarded Cabot letters of patent, 
a document granting him the rights to explore and exploit all parts of the eastern, western, and northern sea under our banners, flags, and ensigns. He would have as many as five ships manned and equipped at their own expense. They were to find, discover, and investigate whatsoever island, countries, and regions in whatsoever part of the world, which before this time were unknown to Christians. And that's a big part of it. He's allowed to do anything he wants as long as it's not to Christians. English textbooks will refer to Giovanni by his English name quite often. And in school in Canada, we learned his name was John Cabot. And that, of course, he was a very important explorer. You get the impression from reading the history that he was a bit of a shyster who just happened to get lucky. He and his crew were the second European group to reach what is now Canada in the area of Newfoundland and Labrador. His discovery of this land with its massive cod resources became a driving reason for further exploration by the English, who had become even more motivated once gold was found in other parts of America. Cabot himself made two trips, or at least tried, uh, to Canada, and in his second trip there is some thought that he got as far south as the northern half of New England, but in all of this, the one problem we have is there's no major record. He didn't keep a diary. Neither, apparently, did anybody on the boats that he was on. And thus, we don't have a very good accounting of what he was doing and where he had gone. There is some commentary that says that the sailors themselves were very scared of the area and didn't want to get off the boats, didn't want to go even as far as any area beyond a crossbow bolt for fear of what would happen and that they were scared of the native communities on the islands. But this first very negligible step, seen as a failure to some extent by Cabot, because it didn't lead to the massive amounts of gold and wealth that I'm sure he expected or spices or any of the other things he would have expected if he got to China, it led to the discovery of a massive territory, which is very important later, but at the time was sort of seen as a flop, so much so that his final attempt we don't know anything about because there is some suggestion that nobody came back from it, but we have some belief that somebody must have. With all that said, as we go in the next few weeks and months, we'll start to see how this change in the age of Europe affects Wales, how the driving force behind the Tudor settlements become built around how to remake what the Welsh position is in the kingdom. And Henry VIII will go a long way in changing how we define what Wales is in the English reality. And with that, I'd like to thank you for listening. I'd like to thank everybody for their comments, questions, and everything else that you guys always send me. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can always reach out to me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com, or you can talk to me on Twitter at Welsh History Pod, or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. And if you would like to help me to purchase the books and the research I need to in order to carry out 
this continuing of this podcast, you can always do that on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Welsh history. Thank you everybody for listening as always. Take care. Have a great day. Bye. This has been a Distractions Media production. And for everything we do, check out distractionsmedia.com. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.